0: time of the day question and answer so we only got four questions so we encourage you if you have any questions over the course of the rest of the day or tomorrow put them in the basket in the lobby and uh, we'll try to uh, get to those questions and if you want to talk to these uh, brothers personally again after this session they'll be up here you can come up and ask them personally so we'll start with brother lewis Okay, my first question is:
1: um, How do you deal with an annoying person? How do you balance covering in love with blunt honesty without cold anger? That's a pretty good. That's a good question, boy. You threw all that in there. How do you balance covering in love with blunt honesty without cold anger? So, as far as overlooking a sin. There are plenty of, plenty of sins that we can um, overlook. Most of those are going to be um, what we would call, with repetitively doing this sort of thing, what we call sins of weakness rather than sins that we would think of as being malicious from the standpoint of, uh, you know, there's a difference in being clumsy and then just flat out trying to hurt somebody. So I may have a blind spot, and you may know that about me and uh, you may have already confronted me in the past about it, and maybe you know I'm working on it, but I've um, uh, sinned a few more times, you're probably not going to keep coming up to me and beating a dead horse. So you would overlook things that you might realize these are not intentional, these are not um, things that Brother Lewis is unaware of, it's already been addressed, and so forth and so on. But whenever somebody's sin begins to affect the way that you're thinking about them and behaving toward them, that's when it's time for you to uh, do something about it. It's what we said this morning. the uh, The goal is to um, uh, to make the Holy Spirit's goal our goal, and that is that the body of Christ would be unified, that we would be able to walk together in love, fulfilling all those one another's that we find in Scripture. So, if it if it turns out that you need to address someone, then I would say, um, you know, the question is how do you do it and balance all these things out. Uh, I would say the first place I would go is, uh, is Ephesians 4, uh, particularly on the, uh, the humility and the meekness or the gentleness and the, and the, the patience, but the, the first two are really going gonna, to gonna influence your approach. You want to you wanna confront somebody in a humble way. You want to confront someone in a gentle way. How you do what you do makes a lot of difference. So there's the difference in me saying, "Hey, I'd like to talk to you because it, you know, it really bothered me, or it really offended me, or it really hurt me when you did this, that, or the other." That's far different than, "Hey, jerk, let's talk." You know. So how you approach it is going to make a big difference. After that, uh, this is the part where we all have to um, we all have to live in a world of. A little bit of discomfort, because after that, this is a wisdom question, okay? And a wisdom question means there are no secret formulas. Um, How can I say this in a way that will make it easy for the person to receive? Well, that's going to depend on the person, okay? And and that's in my mind. How can I say it in a way that's going to make it easy for a person to receive? Now you know, if somebody's going to be annoying, I don't know how many different ways you can say that and package that that's, you know, going to be well received on the other end. Um, But in confrontation in general, there are going to be times where you blunt, honesty is what's needed. But then there's going to be times where you want to be very gentle and you might take an indirect route to what it is that you're trying to address. So that's just going to be uh, wisdom. You want to cover that in prayer. Um, I'm going to, talk a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of how you would do some of this in the second question. But as far as how do you deal with this and how do you balance it, um, you try to esteem the other person better than yourself and you try to move forward in humility and in
2: gentleness.
1: That's what I would say. And some of these brothers may have something else to say to add to that.
2: Amen. No,
3: I... No, go ahead. I thought you were really
2: good. I would just... I would just accent the humility. Um when I heard the word annoying, um it's true people can annoy us. And uh, but I think Galatians six even talks about restoring someone it says to do it in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself. Um and so if uh if 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 we think that somebody else is very annoying, um it, it's also true that we're probably equally annoying in some other area of life. And so um I fixed to hand it, hand it to brother Andrew. But I, I remember, I, I just thought of um, brother Andrew approaching me probably 35 years or more ago, and I still remember his spirit of meekness in which he did it, um, and um, and meekness, and uh, not self-deprecation, but just just humility, admitting our own our own uh, weakness, and even coming to confront somebody else. Um, has a way of disarming the other person. The goal is to disarm them. But you might actually reach the person and not just address the issue.
3: Amen. Thank you, Brother Isaac. Um, I would add also to apply the golden rule um, and its close corollary, the broccoli test. Um, the golden rule says do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The broccoli test says if I had a piece of broccoli in my teeth, are you enough of a friend to me that you would let me know? And, um, and, and obviously the reason you would let your true friend know about the broccoli is because there's something they can do about it. And, and golden rule, you would want them to do that to you. You'd say, Hey, you're about to go sit in a chair in front of a bunch of people. You have broccoli between your teeth. Take care of that. Um, there are things that annoy us about each other that are harder to control than that. There might be, you know, somebody might have a voice that just grates on your nerves somebody might have, you know, habits or quirks that are deeply ingrained. I'm not saying those things can't be worked on or maybe sometimes shouldn't be changed, but just make make sure that you are shooting at the problem and not the person. You know, you're, you're trying to help them. You're, you're their ally when you're lovingly confronting a brother over a sin or any issue. You're, you're, you're taking their side. Hey, can I help you defeat this problem or can I encourage you or hey could you encourage me in some area you know it, it's a should be a cooperative endeavor for you mutually for the two of you to glorify God better
4: Jesus loved a lot of annoying people uh the disciples the twelve were they all had their annoyances different personalities and he he loved some very
2: annoying people that should help motivate us and honestly it, it the word annoy kind of annoys me a little bit <laughs> um, um, because it, it, it I'm not saying it's the wrong word, but it, it, could, it could say that I'm thinking too highly of myself. Um, let me share a story. She won't me sharing this, but uh, when, when Rachel and I first married, <clears throat> um, Rachel grew up in a, in a home in which her dad was, from the time that she was born, her dad was almost deaf, and then he became deaf. Um, and so the conversations in their home, believe it or not, were louder than conversations in the guest home. Um, it was by necessity, and so, as you do that by necessity, it eventually becomes becomes habit so when we first got married, um, we 'd be having a dinner conversation maybe at somebody 's house, and I thought man she 's talking really loud, and so I would nudge her under the table or whatever and uh, and, and and um it it eventually began to hurt her she became she became like insecure when you know is he is he is he annoyed at me is he is am i am I making a fool of myself in front of people and it um and yet it didn't stop me for and, and initially and what I finally realized was that I love myself so much um that I'm willing to injure my wife because I think her voice is one is, is one level too high. That's, uh, that's me being far too much in love with myself. And so humility, humility, humility.
1: Yeah. Another way to say that is you should not confront someone over something that God wouldn't confront them over. Okay, so if God wouldn't confront them, you shouldn't either. So uh, Initially, I was, my first answer was just about sinful anger. But on the other part, you know, preferences and personalities and quirks and those kinds of things, the, what I just said would be a good rule of thumb. Uh, second question I have. <clears throat> All right after discerning that my anger towards someone is righteous anger, can you walk through the best steps in conflict resolution? So you've you've uh, become angry at someone. You've decided this is a I'm angry about the right thing. Uh, it's right that this would um, uh, that this would. Uh, solicit this sort of response, so now, you know, what do we do as far as conflict resolution? Um, Well, Luke 17 is a good passage to go uh, for that. Uh, I would say there's a few good resources. Uh, Brother Andrew mentioned one this morning, Um, a guy named Ken Sandy put together a book called The Peacemaker. There's a smaller resource called Resolving Everyday Conflict, and it's phenomenal material to help um, work through conflict resolution. Uh, one of the things, one of the reasons why that's so important, because just like what Brother Andrew said, um, we are called to be peacemakers. That's, that's part of what it means to be a light in a dark world. That's, uh, there's not a lot of that, um, a matter of fact, there's none of that um, uh, in, a, in a dead and dying world, and that's something that you can have an influence on. The other thing that I would just say in my observation, there aren't very many peacemakers around. Um, it, 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 sometimes people get surprised that there's conflict in the church. You should not be surprised about that. Okay, the church is full of sinners. There's going to be a lot of conflict. That's normal. But what should be abnormal is that the church is full of a lot of resolved conflict. Okay, we ought to be going to one another. Uh, we ought to be confessing. We ought to be confronting. We ought to be repenting. We ought to be restoring. That should be a normal part of what Christians do. And so Luke seventeen is a good passage. Um, Jesus in uh, verse one then said, "He and his disciples, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through who they come." So sometimes we can be a little bit dramatic. We can become uh, drama queens and say, well, "Why does this always happen to me?" Well, it happens to everybody. It's impossible that offenses would come. Okay, offenses come to everyone in a fallen world. So Jesus says verse 3 take heed to yourselves if your brother trespass against thee rebuke him and if he repent forgive him and if he trespass against thee 7 times in a day and 7 times in a day turn again to thee saying I repent then forgive him and the apostles said Lord increase our faith so Jesus answer to that is if you've been sinned against and you've discerned that it was a legitimate offense a legitimate trespass then Take heed to yourselves and go and rebuke or confront. So I would say this. If you're in a situation where you have a conflict that needs to be resolved, the first thing you ought to be doing is praying that the Lord would give you wisdom, that the Lord would give you discernment as you go. Uh, you cannot control what happens on the other end. Uh, somebody may blow up out of a legitimate offense. Somebody may blow up at your best efforts of being kind, um, Uh, in the last couple of months or so I was trying to minister hope to somebody and me in an attempt to be hopeful solicited an explosion on the other end that I just couldn't make any sense out of so you can't control what the other person's going to do but what you can do is pray that the Lord would give you wisdom and humility and be working on the other end and then you gently go and confront the person with whatever the offense was um, and as you're going It may be, like what uh, Brother Isaac mentioned, it may be that before you do that, you you get the log out of your own eye. So, did you contribute anything to the offense? Did you solicit anything that got the offense or the the circumstances surrounding the offense stirred up? So, you're going to confess your own sin. You're going to gently confront. You want to have a posture of forgiveness. That is, you're ready to forgive if this person's broken. One problem that you can see in Christianity that is a real problem is a lot of spiritual snobbery where people think people have to be completely crushed to the ground, groveling in the dirt before they're willing to grant forgiveness. That does not reflect the Spirit of Christ. Okay, so And that doesn't reflect the teaching of Christ. So you're going to confront if the person is convicted, if they're asking your forgiveness, you're going to grant that forgiveness, and you're going to seek to reconcile that relationship. And when you do that... It really is a redemptive act that seeks to undo some of the effects of a fallen world. You know what conflicts typically do? Destroy relationships. And when Christ gives us not just the spirit but the instruction to go and take a conflict and turn it into something that actually strengthens the relationship, that's a little bit of heaven-on-earth redemption that's going on. So it really is a beautiful thing if we're willing to, by faith, step out and try to do this. So that's what I would say.
3: Okay, uh, here's a couple of additional questions. Um, why are they called Beatitudes? That's a great question. Um, there are certain um, characters in the Scripture or, or passages in the Scripture that have kind of taken on a name of their own, um, and sometimes that name is not seen directly in the text, at least in our English text, Um, For example, there's a character in the book of Acts who is uh, characterized as a believer at first until you realize he is a manipulator and he is trying to, um, uh, he wants to ingratiate himself to the apostles, receive some supernatural dispensation from them and then go work miracles himself. And uh, history knows him as Simon Magus or Simon the Magician. So uh, that's just, you know, and there's uh, the rich man uh, and Lazarus. The rich man is called Dives. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Dives. If you read like the old English commentators, dives. You're like who? And well, it's it's dives. So um, so so this is one of those things that's just a quirk of of history that uh, for centuries, um, of course, the you know dominant religious influence in Europe was the Roman Catholic Church, and um, and and they uh, made an attempt to preserve and disseminate the scriptures in Latin. And when I say disseminate, they meant to have it in the hands of the priesthood, but not the hands of the people. That was actually something that they tried very hard to avoid. And so the people's familiarity with Scripture came through recitation. They would hear a passage read on certain days of the year and certain seasons, certain festivals, celebrations, and certain prayers, the pater noster, you know, our Father which art in heaven. Well, every line of the Beatitudes starts in our English Bible with the word blessed, and in Latin, it starts with the uh, word that is a form of the Latin word beatitudos or something like that. So if you heard that over and over as your priest was reading this passage to you, beatitudos, 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 that's all the Latin I know. But um, if he kept repeating that, you would say, oh, yeah, remember the beatitudes. So let's put, put to rest uh, two misunderstandings of the word beatitude. Uh, I've heard it pronounced beatitudes, which is nice, they are beautiful. But that's not what it means. And um, I've heard they're the attitudes that you ought to be. So there be attitudes, which is also not a terrible idea. Not a terrible idea, but uh, not technically accurate. (laughs) I did did not make that up. (laughs) I thought that's what everybody thought it meant. Okay, all right. You want to peek behind the curtain? Here's a peek behind the curtain. Brother Mike brought me this question. And as I looked at the question, I was like, I have no idea what Beatitudes means. I always thought it meant the attitude you should be. (laughs) All I can say is thank God for Google. (laughs) See, brother, you just got to be pure in heart. Just let it all hang out. (laughs) All right. So, um, all right. Um, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. What does it mean specifically to hunger and thirst after righteousness? Righteousness is a very important term theologically in our understanding of salvation, of God's character, of our relationship with God. Um, and so I don't want to oversimplify the meaning of the word righteousness. There's a whole lot in there. Obviously, you know, Jesus Christ, the, the, the triune God, embodies righteousness, which is perfect rectitude, perfect rightness in every dimension. You know, God is not a man that he should lie. Um, you know, God is not tempted with evil, evil neither tempteth he any man. There's, there's just nothing wrong with God, which is why we can accurately and completely, in the ultimate sense, call him righteous. But let me give a real simple definition that you can use in personal daily application, and it comes right out of the word. Righteousness means the right thing. So, a righteous person on a relative scale is someone who is doing the right thing, someone who desires to be righteous, is someone who wants to do the right thing, someone who is hungering and thirsting after righteousness, is somebody whose the aim of their life and maybe their particular, this particular endeavor, I'm going to have a confrontation with somebody who is annoying to me, but I want to do it the right way. Lord, help me do it the right way. That's hungering for righteousness. Uh, Lord, I want to make sure that my the basis of this offense is actually something that I should even legitimately be concerned about and talk to them about. Um, I want to have a right understanding of Your Word to know if this is that sort of offense. Uh, those are all examples—very practical, tangible, small examples of hungering uh, for, after righteousness. Um, the, um, the 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 desire to be righteous. It, it, we have to, on the one hand, maintain a clear distinction between God's perfect righteousness and our always imperfect righteousness that comes out of our actions, our thoughts, and our mouths. But there is, again, I refer to David in the book of Psalms, you know, when he pleads his own righteousness before God by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I, I see a real, again, pureness of heart in David as he's doing that. He doesn't, it doesn't read to me as pretentious, it doesn't read to me as David justifying himself and saying, I'm not the one that's causing the problem here. It's like David is being criticized by people. You know, one time he had a tremendous victory. He got back into town and he danced down the street. And Michael, his wife, looking out of the window, you know, despised him in her heart. People misjudge people sometimes. People say, you did that because you're a show-off. You did that because, you know what David did? He did it because he was so happy. He was so thankful. He was so, he was praising God and he shouldn't go apologize to anybody for that. And so, and so you know, that was a, a righteous disposition within him. And rather than get hurt, you know, and, and, and take offense at it, you know, it's, it's, there, we, we should be wanting to do and trying to do right often enough that there are times when somebody criticizes us when we can just, you know, just let it, let it, let it roll off of us. You know, Lord, you know my heart. I'm so thankful I don't have to prove or justify myself to anybody I care more about what my wife thinks about me than any other human being on the planet but there are times that I have to say Lord I'm thankful you know my heart and she has to do the same with me so you know you just have to um, it's it's this yearning this craving this desire to be on the right page to think the way God thinks about things which is another definition for wisdom so it's really saying you know we're hungering, thirsting after Christ's own perfections. We want to be more like him. We want to think about things the way he thinks. We want to look at things the way he looks at them and not you know, have our distorted perspective be the one that's governing our lives. Um, I've got one more, but I'll pass the mic around on those, that righteousness question. Or if anybody wants to offer an alternative definition of the Beatitudes.
4: Isn't there an aspect of the hungering for righteousness, of hungering for uh, a sense of being justified before God, of a sinner who, you talk about lacking this morning, of someone who lacks, they see their lack, they're bankrupt before God, they are full of sin, they have no righteousness, and God uses that to bring them to Jesus, the law condemns them, and so they hunger to be cleansed, to be clothed with Christ's perfect righteousness, is there an aspect of that too?
3: Amen. Amen. Why don't you say something about
4: that? The Lord, our righteousness. I mean, that's what God does when he works in our hearts. He shows us our <clears throat> bankruptcy, our need of a savior. He shows us that we're not right with God in and of ourselves. And I love how you said that, that we severely lack uh, before God. And and so we hunger, we thirst, we long. It's like the, the publican, you know, in the parable who the Pharisee saw himself as very righteous, thought he was great with God, and the publican is condemned saying, Lord, uh, be merciful to me, the sinner. I need, I need something I don't have. I need righteousness. And the whole good news of the gospel is that that God has done for sinners in Christ what they could never do for themselves, which is to, to become righteous. And Jesus is the Lord, our righteousness. God has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So that's that that legal standing, a positional standing of all those who are in Christ are fully righteous in God's sight in a justification standpoint. Standpoint, and then we are growing in grace. We're we're living out um, who we are in Christ with a practical righteousness, justification, and sanctification. So, I I think it's kind of both end on that hungering for
3: righteousness. Yeah, Amen. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. There, that um, there is a close correlation. They're they're distinct, but they're closely tied. To positional righteousness and practical righteousness, um, righteousness within thee rooted may appear to take its part, but let righteousness imputed be the breastplate for thy heart. Um, your righteousness will never be successful at keeping out the fiery darts of Satan and you know standing up against uh, all of uh, the, the spiritual warfare and, and reality that in which you live. Christ's righteousness will guard your heart and keep you alive in him but his righteousness will also have an influence on you Amen. that flows out in your desire to walk more righteously so you're going to hunger and thirst positionally uh, to to apprehend that which by we, by which you've been apprehended as Paul said to grab a hold of how he gotten a hold of you but then you're also going to want to you're going to crave to be to walk more like him you're never going to be satisfied there was an article Isaac and I talked about a week or two ago um, totally non-PB. I don't even think Sovereign Grace. It was like, um, but, you know, kind of millennial, some of the modern uh, trends in, in uh, what's considered evangelical Christianity, you know, pretty conservative Christianity in America today. But they talked about how grace is becoming so cheapened because everybody's response to any kind of sin, any kind of unrighteousness is, well, we just got to show grace. And it's become the judge not that you be not judged, you know, of, of, of this decade. And um, and this notion of, you know, just constantly, you know, g- g- grace. Well, it's true that love covers a multitude of sins. It's also true that we love Him because He first loved us, that He's loved us with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness He's drawn us so that His love, His grace are causative. They have an effect. Mm-hmm. And, and His righteousness imputed to us is going to have an effect. The more and more we comprehend it, the, the more of an impact it's going to have on us, which really ties in well with the last question I received, do I do I seek to hate sin like God does or do I just let him hate it himself? Which I thought was a pretty interestingly worded question. I mean, you know, because God is perfectly righteous, because I know I'm not, maybe I just leave all that in God's hands and be like, okay, God, you take care of, you know, deciding what's right and wrong, hating sin. But the more my mind is, um, becomes aligned to the mind of Christ, the more I'm going to, Want to and to actually begin to think about things the way he thinks about them, to look at things the way he looks at them. Uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 13, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. And so there's an interesting irony here. Sometimes the more you delve into the Scriptures, you get really serious with the Lord. You're like, okay, I want to understand God's Word. I want to understand more about His nature. I want to understand more about what God expects of me. And the more you get into His Word, you might actually be, be living a better life. Your parents, your friends might be looking at him like, something's going on with that guy. But the more you're doing that, you might be feeling more and more condemned because the more you're reading God's Word, the more you're realizing how far short you fall. And maybe that sarcastic, witty attitude that gets applause from all your buds, you realize, wow, I'm wounding God's children every time I do that. And that sin becomes exceeding sinful. It becomes like like such a, a bitter, harsh taste in your mouth, which is a good thing. It's one of those weird blessings. It's a blessing to be so disgusted with your own self that you could just say, Lord, I'm a mess. Help me. Clean, cleanse me. Um, so that, that I think it is uh, a healthy thing to, to hate, especially our own sins, to have a righteous indignation at sin in general and sin in the abstract and sin in the world and abortion and you know, uh, evil men and seducers waxing worse and worse. It's good to be righteously outraged about those things. It's especially good to be righteously outraged about your own shortcomings so that, you, that helps you cultivate that spirit of humility and draw even closer to the Lord and walk more closely with Him. What would you all like to add to that? You're,
2: no, I uh, so tonight i'm going to be speaking on uh matthew 5 later in the passage where it says uh to uh, love your enemies um so i took that question i don't know what the intent was, was regarding my own sin but probably it was more about the sins that you see out in the world the the, the blasphemy against god um and so i just it made me think of of um of Psalm 139, uh, in which uh, the Lord had become very, very precious to David in that psalm. Uh, he's thinking about, Lord, you've, you've known me perfectly. You have thought of me from the very moment that I was formed in my mother's womb. Your thoughts are, are uh, you're always with me. Uh, there's no place I can go that you won't be there. And um, he just it's just precious to me. And so the very next thought was, but, but there are people that don't love the Lord that way. Um, there are people who speak ill of the Lord. And so he says, You know, surely, surely you will slay the wicked. Um, depart from me, therefore, you bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Uh, do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Some pretty strong language, um, and it, it, it arises from the overflow of David's just uh, delight in the Lord and his 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 wonder and awe at how precious that God's thoughts of David were. And so, there is sort of that righteous anger that Brother Lewis described of of uh, hating the idea um, that um, that that there are those. Would, uh, that there is blasphemy out in the world. There are those who hate the name of the Lord. Now, here's why I read that from Psalm 39. The same David, this is where love your enemies comes in. The same David who wrote that and believed that is the same David who when he had the sword in his hand and could have then silenced one of the enemies of the Lord. So when that enemy of the Lord, Saul, was under his power, David had the choice, the chance to do with Saul what he would he would not raise his hand against Saul. He did good to Saul instead. He was, he was uh, merciful to Saul. And I think that's sort of the, 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 the walk that we have to have. We, we, we do not uh, rejoice that, um, that there are enemies of God, but what we, what we do when in interpersonal relations, what we do is we hope that they will become like us and love the Lord. And so we do good to them instead of doing evil.
1: I would just give one other uh, category of of, uh, caution in that. So it it is right that we would be angry about the things that God is angry about. It is wrong that we would get obsessed with our anger about the things that God is angry about. So there are times where we can get so zeroed in on um, something that is a legitimate um, cause for anger, and that's all we can see. That's all we think about. That's all we talk about. Um, it completely consumes us. There's no room left in our hearts for joy or for anything, really, um, uh, as far as um, uh, on a positive end, as far as our spiritual life goes. We're, again, we're living in a, in a cultural climate right now that is uh, saturated in that sort of thing to where there are legitimate wrongs that should make you angry, but you should not eat, drink, and sleep those things.
0: Very good. That concludes our question and answer. Don't forget to uh, put your questions in the basket in the lobby. And one final comment just to what Brother Andrew said about the law being uh, making sin exceeding sinful. Really, the point of the Sermon on the Mount is to bring us to the place we realize we're utterly desperate and incapable of doing anything that the sermon says to do. when Jesus speaks that pivotal verse in Matthew 5.20, For verily I say unto you, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't saying if you can just get a little higher than they were. He was saying this righteousness you need is alien to you. You don't have it positionally, and you can't get it practically without me. And so if you could do what the Sermon on the Mount says, you don't need a Savior. You don't need Jesus. So the point is, He's our only righteousness, positionally, practically, and in any way. And so it causes us to call out upon Him for His help, His strength to do the very things that He calls us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. So I hope you've been encouraged today. This is now a break time, activity, singing